ETF Prime is hosted by Nature Racine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. How can investors access innovative companies? One way is through Invesco's Innovation Suite. It offers access to the world's most groundbreaking companies that have demonstrated a strong commitment to innovation through research and development, including patents. Invesco offers a variety of options across all sizes and types of innovative companies. Explore the possibilities at Invesco.com slash Innovation Suite. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus with this information. Read it carefully before investing. Risks involved with investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs are subject to risks similar to those of stocks. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me will be Brian Lake, Global Head of ETF Solutions at JP Morgan Asset Management who I would say nobody in ETFs is having a better start to the year than J.P. Morgan. And if you look, this is really just a continuation of the significant momentum they built last year. Uh, it, it's amazing. We'll talk about this. J.P. Morgan has grown assets around $30 billion just over the past year. And remember, this hasn't exactly been a, a stellar market environment. It's not like the growth has been driven by market performance. It's really being driven by organic flows. And so JP Morgan is now over $100 billion in ETF assets overall. They actually have the top two ETFs in terms of inflows this year. They also have the top two active ETFs in terms of assets Overall, uh, J.P. Morgan is simply in the ETF zone right now. And so Brian and I will discuss all of that. And we'll also discuss the ETF industry as a whole. Uh, Brian's obviously quite bullish, as you might expect. Also joining me this week will be Anikit Olal, head of ETF data and analytics at CFRA, who's a leading investment research firm. And I'll tell you now, Anikit's quickly become a real go-to resource for me. He's putting out some excellent ETF research and commentary. And so what we're going to do is touch on some of the biggest stories in ETF so far this year, including international ETF flows, uh, active ETFs. We'll talk growth versus value uh, ETFs. This should be a lot of fun. And I'm very excited to have you introduced to Anikit. I think you'll very quickly see his depth of ETF expertise. Now to start, I have on the line with me Stacy Morris, head of energy research at Vetify. 
And uh, speaking of expertise, Stacy is our resident energy sector expert. I- I'm telling you, she has forgotten more about the energy space than I know. <laughs> I'm serious. I always learn uh, something new from Stacy. And she's going to discuss what's been going on with uh, energy and energy ETFs over the past few months. So let's do that now. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. 2% of demand versus 1% of demand is, is a pretty big shift. Energy companies have changed a lot. You know, they're generating significant free cash flow. They're buying back their equity. They're offering attractive dividends. Stacy, welcome back to the uh, podcast. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Nate. It's great to be with you this morning. Okay, so I was looking back. You last joined me in early December. And as you may recall, at that time, the Energy Select Sector Spider ETF, XLE, which we obviously like to point to as a uh, proxy for the broad energy space, that was sitting on its high for the year. It, it was up over 70%. Now, since that time, it's about uh, flat, w- which is fine, but that's trailed most other sectors. And I would say, especially if you look over the past month or two, there's been some notable weakness here. So I thought to start, what's been going on with broad energy recently? Why, why this relative weakness after being the top performing sector in 2022 uh, by far? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, broadly there's an element of things that didn't work well in 2022 have worked well so far in 2023 and, and vice versa. You know, crypto and technology are off to a great start. Uh, sectors like energy that did really well this year are off to a little bit of a rocky start. Um, even utilities that did you know, fairly decently last year um, are you know seeing a pretty weak start to the year. So um, there's a lot of different elements there. You could talk about rotation from value to growth or re- greater risk appetite. Um, I'll probably leave that conversation to others. But if you look at, you know, broad energy, the energy benchmark that we look at for the U.S. was off, you know, about 1% on a price return basis through Friday, um, March 3rd, versus the S&P 500 being up over 5%. So clearly a laggard. Um, And specifically for energy, I think there's just been a number of challenges facing the sector uh, that have predominantly been challenges for oil and gas producers. Um, so clearly, you know, today we have weaker commodity prices for oil and natural gas relative to what we saw for much of the last year. Um, particularly natural gas has been really weak lately. Um, and producers are feeling pressure from cost inflation. Today, it's probably 20% more expensive to drill a well than it was a year ago. So if you're a producer, your bottom line is getting squeezed because you're getting lower revenues from lower commodity prices. And then you also have higher costs. Um, and generally, you know, majors, oil and gas producers, refiners, you know, those energy companies that saw record earnings last year are generally expected to have lower earnings this year. So there's kind of this negative rate of change for financial metrics. Um, and with the strong performance last year, things like free cash flow yields aren't as juicy as they were for a lot of pockets of the energy space. So I think all of those factors have kind of led to, you know, some of the weakness that we've seen to start the year. Okay, so while broad energy is off to a uh, a, a rocky or or lackluster start this year, I know if we uh, drill a bit deeper, and and pardon my pun with the uh, the drill, I I can't help myself, but I know there are some subsectors that are working pretty well. So uh, perhaps talk about those and and maybe highlight a couple of ETFs that have your attention right now. 
Yeah, sure. And, and what's an energy discussion without a drilling time? So uh, I think that's a, a good thing to include. But you're absolutely right. Um, we mentioned, you know, XLE is down slightly year-to-date through Friday. If you look at some of the bigger components of the XLE, you know, Chevron, some of the larger oil and gas producers, they're actually down around 8% year-to-date. Um, but certain subsectors are doing much better because the headwinds that I talked about around lower commodity prices or cost inflation don't really impact them. Um, so, for example, you know, higher costs for oil field services hurts producers, but it's a benefit for those oil field service companies. Um, so, oil field service names are actually expected to see their earnings grow this year, um, and they're really benefiting from you know, pricing power, solid demand, uh, and just overall more activity relative to last year, both in the U.S. and internationally. Um, so from an ETF perspective, there are a couple ETFs focused on oil field services, but the largest by far is the VanEck Oil Services ETF. That's ticker OIH, and that's up almost 9% year-to-date, so clearly outperforming the S&P 500. Um, another subsector I would highlight is energy infrastructure and midstream. Um, these are the companies that are largely earning fees for providing services. Um, things like pipeline transportation, storage, processing natural gas. Um, and these companies are also positioned to see EBITDA growth this year, albeit you know, mostly modest because these are stable fee-based businesses, but still you know, positive growth. Um, and within this category, MLPs or master limited partnerships have seen really a particularly good start to the year. Um, I think that has to do a lot with positive dividend announcements that we've seen in this space. Um, keep in mind, you know, investors tend to use MLPs for income. Um, the underlying index for the Alarian MLP ETF, AMLP, was yielding 7.5% as of Friday. Um, so this tends to be more of an income space, but uh, MLPs can also be used for more defensive energy exposure, um, an energy exposure that's less tied to what's happening with commodity prices. Um, so the index beneath AMLP is up over you know, 6% on a total return basis year-to-date through March 3rd. Um, so definitely a tough start to the year for producers um, and for kind of energy broadly, but there are definitely some subsectors of the space that are really working well. Stacy, this is probably a bit of a uh, nebulous question, and maybe you can't answer this, but as you go through some of those subsectors there, you mentioned OIH and AMLP, um, how do you think longer-term investors should approach allocating to uh, energy. And, and the way I'll frame this is, obviously, most investors have at least some exposure to the energy sector through their core portfolio holdings, right? If they own the S&P 500 or Russell 3000 or whatever. So assuming that's the case, do you view energy ETFs as a uh, tactical play on top of that? Or should these be considered longer term satellite holdings? I'm just curious how you think investors should approach this space uh, with, with the usual caveat, by the way. Obviously, you're not here to uh, dispense investment advice, right? I, I would just love to hear your general take on this because I do think it offers some context around uh, how you view what we're discussing here today. Yeah, um, this is such a great question. I think there's a lot to unpack here because there's not a one size fits all answer to your question. I think. There's a little bit of everything um, between being tactical, being strategic, but you know, first, you're right in that most people probably have some energy exposure in their core holdings if they're using a broad market ETF that tracks the S&P 500, for example. Um, I think for a lot of people, that's probably all the energy exposure they maybe want or need. 
Um, they don't want to have to make calls on the sector, and they're okay missing out when energy does really well, like it did in 21 and 2022. Um, and if you own it, you know, through a broad fund like that, you're getting diversified energy exposure probably across Exxon, Chevron, oil and gas producers, refiners, oil field service, and even some midstream. So you're kind of getting a, a little bit of everything probably in there. Um, but on the other hand, you know, if you want to be tactical with this space, you certainly can be. Um, it's a cyclical sector, and that creates opportunities. So from a tactical perspective, that may mean making calls to overweight or underweight a broad energy exposure, um, or it may mean deciding to tilt energy exposure in favor of a certain subsector. Uh, maybe you want more commodity price exposure, or maybe you want less commodity price exposure, um, or you're trying to play a certain trend. So there's certainly an opportunity to be tactical here. That said, I do think some energy positions should be long-term strategic holdings, um, especially if you're using them. <clears throat> excuse me, especially if you're using them for income. Um, you know, for some that may be collecting dividends from Exxon and Chevron, uh, but specifically if you own MLPs or you own an ETF that is predominantly MLPs like AMLP, you know, the primary benefit of those is the potential for tax-deferred income. So without getting too into leads from a tax perspective, you know, typically 70 to 100% of MLP distributions are considered a, a tax-deferred return of capital, um, which lowers your basis and, and basically means you don't have to pay taxes on those until you sell out of your position. So if you really want to maximize that tax deferral, um, you kind of want to hold for a long time to put off those taxes. For a similar reason, MLPs can also be a really good estate planning tool. You know, if you own an MLP and you pass away, the basis gets stepped up to your heirs at fair market value at death. So in that case, you know, taxes on those return of capital distributions aren't paid by you. They're not paid by your estate or your heirs. Um, so that can be a really nice estate planning tool. And the same treatment holds true for MLP-focused ETFs. Um, obviously, everyone could, should consult a tax advisor for their specific situation. Um, but to kind of sum that up, I think energy can be a lot more than just a sector exposure, depending on how you want to use it and what you want to get from it. Um, there are certainly use cases that support long-term strategic ownership. There's also you know, use cases that can be very tactical. So it's a little bit like a choose-your-own-adventure, um, but there's a lot of options there for investors. I love that answer. As with uh, most things investing, there's some nuance there. And I thought you did a great job of uh, sort of threading the needle. So I, I guess with that in mind, uh, if we look towards the remainder of the year for investors who do want to allocate to energy, whether that be uh, via a tactical play or people maybe looking to get involved longer term for income, as you mentioned, um, what what do you see moving forward? Uh, you, you mentioned some of the subsectors working recently. Uh, do you expect that to continue, or do you expect to see other areas of opportunity, different subsectors, or do you think broad energy, something like XLE, can recapture its upward trend? What, what do you see playing out here? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a good potential for commodity prices to improve from where they are today, and that could be you know, helpful for boosting broader energy. But I think overall, 2023 is going to be very different from 2022. You know, last year, if you bought the XLE or Exxon or Chevron, those kind of default energy options, you did extremely well. Um, you know, Chevron was up almost 60% for the year. XLE ended up, you know, over up over 60% on a total return basis. Exxon was up 87%. Um, 
you know, those kind of performance numbers probably aren't happening this year. Um, so with that in mind, I think there's a lot of merit to looking more closely at subsectors like oil field services and midstream or MLPs, where there is this expectation for a positive rate of change for financial metrics, and it's not really tied as much to what happens with commodity prices. Um, also for context, you know, midstream and MLPs, depending on our index that you look at, um, you know, we're up between 20% to, to just over 30% last year. They didn't see that big move of some of the other energy names. So to me, it feels a little bit like they have a little more running room um, than maybe other pockets of energy that saw really, really strong performance last year. Um, if you want to take an even broader approach, I mean, I think energy tends to have multi-year cycles. Um, and I don't think personally that 2022 was the end of the current up cycle. Um, but that's maybe a, a conversation for a different day. But all that together, I think things can still get better. But I don't think 2023 is going to see the same kind of all-around strength that we saw in 2022. Just a few minutes left here. You've mentioned commodity prices several times, uh, oil and natural gas. You pointed to the weakness there uh, so far this year. And, you know, I get, as you noted, that some energy sectors or subsectors are going to be more impacted by something like oil and natural gas prices. But any, any quick thoughts on either of those uh, looking forward? Do you see any potential drivers, I guess, whether positive or negative for oil and nat gas? Yeah, I mean, I think, honestly, both can probably get better from where they are today. Um, on the oil side, you know, prices have actually been remarkably stable since, you know, mid to late November. Um, you know, WTI, the, the oil benchmark in the U.S., has been pretty range-bound between $75 and $80 a barrel since then. So that's a big contrast to the volatility that we saw last year. Um, that said, the start of this year was always going to be kind of the most vulnerable time for oil. Um, you have China demand slowly ramping, Russian supply fairly stable, um, and the thought has generally been that things would tighten as the year goes on and potentially into 2024. Um, and I think that's still possible. So I think there's certainly the potential for prices to improve. But I would also mention that, you know, by the standards of the last decade, $75 to $80 oil is, is still pretty good. Um, on the natural gas side, you know, prices there really got hammered, mainly due to oversupply. We had too much production growth in the U.S. There wasn't enough demand due to really a warm winter, and then a slow restart of a LNG export facility. So prices in the U.S. went from $6 in mid-December uh, to briefly trading below $2 intraday in late February. So um, for natural gas, it feels like there should be an upside bias. In some ways, just because it feels like things can't get too much worse from here. Um, so in short, I think prices for both oil and natural gas can move higher, but probably not, you know, going to be hitting the same type of levels that we saw in 2022, particularly for natural gas. Well, Stacy, excellent insight as always. Like I said at the top, I, I'm serious. I really think that you have forgotten more about the energy space than I know cumulatively. <laughs> I really enjoy these conversations. Thank you so much for joining me. No, thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Nate. That was Stacy Morris, head of energy research at Vetify. Is it time to amplify your income potential? Explore what a high-quality covered call strategy can do for your monthly income needs. Discover Amplify DIVO and IDVO providing monthly income potential and active management in the efficiency of an ETF. When income matters to you, explore Amplify ETFs. 
Get current monthly yields at AmplifyYields.com. There's no guarantee that distributions will be made. Investing risk includes principal loss. ETFs are subject to covered call risk. Visit AmplifyETFs.com to view a prospectus, which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully. Amplify ETFs are distributed by Foreside Fund Services, LLC. My next guest is Brian Lake, Global Head of ETF Solutions at JP Morgan Asset Management, who currently offers 47 ETFs, now over $100 billion in ETF assets. They're one of the fastest growing ETF issuers out there. That's been led by two products in particular, the JP Morgan Ultra Short Income ETF, ticker JPST, and the J.P. Morgan Equity Premium Income ETF, ticker J-E-P-I, JEPI. But I'll tell you, they're really seeing success across the board. And they actually have the two ETFs with the most inflow so far this year. So JEPI and then the uh, J.P. Morgan Beta Builders Europe ETF, ticker B-B-E-U. And Brian is now on the line with me from New York. Brian, great to uh, connect. Welcome to the podcast. Likewise, Nate, thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's great to connect with you as well. All right, so look, there are several different directions we can head here, but I guess let's just uh, start with this ETF growth I uh, mentioned. You're now the seventh largest ETF issuer, over $100 billion in assets. You've grown something like $30 billion just over the past year despite a very challenging market environment. And we'll get into some specific ETFs in a moment, but just high level, what's been going on here? What's uh, driving this acceleration? Yeah, well, Nate, it's a, it's a great question. Um, and, you know, the way maybe I would answer it is, is a couple fold. Um, so first of all, you know, we're, we're kind of swimming in the currents of the, of the broader adoption of ETF. Um, you know, you've been you've been quite vocal about that yourself. You know, certainly we're seeing more and more investors embrace the ETF technology uh, within their portfolios. And you know, now with the U.S. ETF market at seven trillion, you know, I think I think definitely could double to to, to close to fifteen trillion within the next five years. Um, you know, the ETF market you know continues to grow. Within that, you know, very interestingly, the um, is is the growth of active ETFs. Um, and so, you know, the fact that active ETFs are only about 4% of total AUM, uh, but accounted for just under 20% of AUM uh, last year, and already this year about 40% of, uh, of, of, of net AUM. I know it's early, but, you know, you can still, still see the pattern forming. Um, that's, that's a really uh, interesting thing. And so, you know, from our perspective, you know, we're delivering our fiduciary active management. That's what we do first and foremost. And then the objective is to deliver that through our ETF wrapper, the ETF technology, which is the, the wrapper that clients seem to be embracing. And so, you know, I think a couple of things have lined up where, um, you know, investors are embracing active ETFs. We've been delivering some, some of our, our best-in-class active capabilities through the ETF wrapper. 
and you've and you've started to see kind of that 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 client adoption that that we always hope to have. Um, that's the that's the best I could do to kind of to point out where I think we're seeing the success with active ETFs in particular. And I discussed flows on this podcast last week. You were alluding to this. Active ETFs have taken in something like forty percent of all ETF flows this year. They're clearly resonating with investors right now. Uh, you, you mentioned how investors are embracing uh, th- these products. Certainly, in, embracing JP Morgan's active ETFs. W- what's driving that? Why do you think that is? Well, it's actually this kind of this funny inverted you know question, Nate, and I'll, I'll I'll answer it like this, right? So, if we look at the fund landscape across the U.S., um, mutual funds and ETFs. 40 Act, if you will. Um, there's $30 trillion, um, seven of which is in ETFs, meaning 23 of which is in is in mutual funds. And we know not all 23 of that is, is active, but we know the vast majority is, which tells me that investors, um, you know, really like active capabilities. Um, they're, they're doing the due diligence to identify good active management, building portfolios, using those. We've certainly seen, you know, a shift. There's a trend towards passive. And, you know, I've read the academic research and, you know, it definitely plays a part in portfolios. But investors do like active. Um, the, the opportunity to outperform the benchmark, risk management, um, delivering an outcome. You know, Jeffy's a great example that, you know, there's, it's an actively managed strategy. But, you know, one of the reasons investors like to use it is because of the, the distributions that it makes, right? Um, and, and so, you know, that's an outcome that, that we think, um, that, that we think we can, that we can drive. So, you know, broadly speaking, investors, you know, still think that active plays a huge part in their portfolio. And so, you know, in a way, you know, what I think we're actually just seeing is the penny drops for investors where they love the ETF technology. It's, it's, it's convenient, trades throughout the day, tax efficient, transparent. Um, but at the same time, they're now able to get active management through the ETF wrapper, layer into that then the market environment, which, you know, I think challenging would be an understatement at this point. You know, you've got the Fed raising rates at record rates. Um, You've got equity markets and bond markets that responded poorly, you know, throughout the the year last year. You know, it's been well documented. We're we're here for the 60-40 portfolio and, you know, in a very long time. And investors are looking for, you know, solutions. And active can provide that solution in a number of different ways. The way I like to word it is that it, it, it can it can help deliver intentional outcomes. Um, so we've talked about Jeppy with the, the the income that it generates, but what about Java, our active value strategy? Um, here's a here's a strategy that's run by you know Claire Hart and Scott Blaisdell, who are who are two of the most prominent portfolio managers in the industry, and certainly within J.P. Morgan now running a flagship active value strategy for us. You know, intentional fundamental stock selection you know, from the from the bottoms up. And it outperformed the Russell 1000 value by 6% last year. Um, and so that's a real outcome that investors are, you know, in, in embracing and looking for, you know, within their portfolios. And I think as, you know, we've got this confusing rate environment, we've got, you know, potential, you know, recession, soft landing, no landing, like all of this. I think embracing, you know, portfolio managers that are doing the stock selection or fixed bond selection as it, as it may be, that's going to play a bigger part in investor portfolios. 
Coming back to the broader adoption of ETFs, and, and you mentioned this uh, prediction that potentially five years from now, the ETF industry could more than double from $7 trillion to $15 trillion. And certainly, if you look from an ETF issuer's perspective, they're you know, meeting investors uh, you know, where they want to be met, and that is through the ETF technology and the ETF wrapper. One of the ways they're doing that is through mutual fund to ETF conversions. And I know J.P. Morgan converted its first mutual fund into an ETF, I believe, in April of last year. Uh, I, I believe you now have four converted funds overall with plans to convert several more. How big of a contributor do you think these conversions could be to ETF growth overall? Again, not, not just J.P. Morgan's, but across the entire industry. Yeah, it's, it's you know, from, from our perspective, you know, Nate, you know, and we talked about this a little bit, but ETF celebrating the 30th year anniversary this year. There's never been a rolling five-year period where ETF assets haven't doubled, including the last five years where they doubled from $3.5 to $7 trillion. That's kind of the, the, the rough math that I do to get us doubling over the next five years. So that's kind of the, the backdrop for, you know, the continued client adoption, growth of ETF industry, et cetera, et cetera. Um, conversions um, will play a part in that. Um, from a J.P. Morgan perspective, it's it's just kind of one leg of, of what we think is, is a multi-leg kind of strategy. Uh, to your point, last year we converted four mutual funds to ETFs, uh, and we've we've and that was that was about eight billion dollars, nine billion dollars of, of converted assets. Um, you know, this year we've announced another four conversions, which is you know somewhere in the range of two and a half to three billion dollars. Um, you know, and 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 that makes up you know you know, we'll make up, you know, roughly 10% of our, our overall AUM. Um, I don't know if that's a good proxy for the rest of the industry. I know that a lot of, a lot of, you know, managers have announced their intentions to do it. Some on smaller funds, some on newer funds, et cetera, et cetera. It'll, it'll be a contributor, but I don't think it'll be a major contributor. Um, I think it'll just continue to, you know, take along. Now, as time evolves, um, you know, there may, you know, we may see that snowball a little bit, but for the time being, I think it's going to be a relatively limited contributor, client adoption, growth of active, growth of fixed income, I think are going to be significantly bigger drivers uh, than conversions. Okay, well, let, let me throw you a little bit of a curveball then. And I, I don't know if you can speak to this, but I'll ask you anyway, uh, and this is somewhat related to conversions. Any thoughts on Vanguard's uh, share class patent expiration? Do you think we might see uh, m- many issuers pursue this, and is this something J.P. Morgan would ever consider? Because this could be another path to bringing ETFs to market. You know, um, the way I'd answer that, Nate, is you know whether it's conversions, whether it's launching new products, uh, or or looking at other things that are on the horizon as far as kind of innovations within the industry. Where the conversation starts at J.P. Morgan is with the client. What's the better outcome for the client? Um, are we able to do something in such a way that we think we're incrementally improving the experience that they're currently getting, either by taking costs out of the stack, by delivering it in a more efficient vehicle where potentially the tax efficiencies can come along, um, you know, and, 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 and those types of things. Um, so, you know, with, with the share class story, you know, first of all, I think the jury's, you know, massively still out on whether or not that will, you know, ever come to uh, fruition. And if it would, and if it were, we would, you know, we would definitely, you know, look at that and see if we thought it could could add value to, to, to clients. Um, there doesn't seem to be a ton of traction there right now. And so that's not something that we're spending a ton of time on. Uh, but I would say that we're watching it.
Okay, going back to uh, JP Morgan ETF. So your two largest ETFs are both actively managed. Uh, we touched on the JP Morgan Equity Premium Income ETF, JEPI. Uh, the other one is JPST. Uh, and I know this may not be the most exciting ETF uh, for investors, but investors clearly like this one as well. This is now over uh, $20 billion in assets. Any quick comments on that? Yeah, I mean, define excitement. You know what I mean? It's the <laughs> largest active ETF in the world. Uh, we got James McNerney, who's the portfolio manager of that thing, who has, you know, logged the miles, working closely with clients, explaining exactly what he's doing in that portfolio. Um, and, you know, it, you know, we talk about it as being a step out of, out of cash, right? And, you know, I, you know, there's been some of these acronyms thrown around where it was like, there was no other alternatives, and, and now there are alternatives. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is JPST, with a duration of less than 12 months, is yielding over 5%. Um, and it's been a long time since we've seen levels like that, and that can play a meaningful part in portfolios. And I think, you know, two things really come to mind. One, that becomes kind of your hurdle rate for, do I, do I think I can find investments that are going to exceed that in this environment? Um, and so, you know, I think a lot of investors saying like, you know, that can that can play a, a really big part. And and then number two is, you know, if you think about like asset allocation, um, you know, a lot of a lot, you know, most ETF users are taking, a, you know, a dozen or, you know, 15 ETFs, putting together a portfolio to drive the outcome that they're that they're trying to achieve. JPSC plays a huge part uh, in, in that. Um, you know, I think, you know, you know, one of the things that we don't talk about as much, but our global liquidity business is just under $800 billion globally. We're one of the largest in that space. And, you know, so, you know, whether it's Jamie Dimon's Fortress balance sheet or, you know, how well that group is, you know, run and, and from a performance standpoint, there's a lot to like about that. And that's an area where in, investors want to make sure that they get it right. And, you know, I think JPST, you know, has, has shown, you know, both from a performance standpoint and, you know, the way that we design that product that it can play a really big part in, in, in that. And so, um, you know, that was one of the original kind of active strategies that, um, you know, I really think investors say, oh, okay, this is interesting. I see that this can, this, this is an, an interesting area of the marketplace where J.P. Morgan has a differentiated approach to what's, what's already available to me and, and really started this snowball rolling as far as, you know, the, the broader adoption of active ETFs. Just a few minutes left here. So, look, we talked about how inve investors are embracing active management. We've specifically highlighted JEPI, uh, Java. You know, with Java in particular, investors may be looking at a more value-oriented approach. Certainly, you look at JPST. I agree, investors looking to take advantage of, of higher yields and, and looking to that product. But I have to ask you, what has been going on with this Beta Builders Europe ETF, ticker BBEU? So I show nearly $6 billion into this uh, so far over the first two months of the year. And I, I guess I'll just add that does sort of fit with the uptick in interest we've seen around international ETFs as a whole. But what, what's your take on BBEU? Yeah, you know, so, so Nate, you know, you know our range, but we've got, you know, you know, our flagship active capabilities, you mentioned a bunch of them, you know, Jeppy, Java, JGrow is an interesting story, JPI, which is our income fund, which is a sleeping giant. I'd love to come back to that one if we have, if we have time, four plus bond. But then we also have our beta builder suite. And, um, and what we see is investors are using both active and passive in their portfolios. And we actually think that we can do a great job delivering passive capabilities as well, right? You know, so we've got this beta builder suite. 
which is, I don't know, $25, $30 billion in, in, in money across that. And to your point, we've seen a shift in assets towards international uh, equities. Europe is attractive. I think, you know, if you think about the geopolitical issues that Europe had last year, if you think about some of the inflation things that were going on, the cost of energy, um, you know, all, all of the, the different things, Brexit continuing to play itself out. Um, there, there was some unloved securities on the on the European side. And I think, you know, when the year turned over, uh, a lot of those, uh, you know, a lot of investors saw that those companies were great companies and they wanted to participate uh, in that in that space. And so, you know, not only have we seen flows back into BBEU um, because it's, it's, you know, it's been, you know, close to this level in the past. And so it's, you know, one of those tools where investors use it. And then when they, you know, adjust their portfolio, maybe they adjust it a different way. We've also seen it in the JIRE, J-I-R-E, which is our international REI strategy. It's an active strategy, kind of low low alpha target of kind of 75 to 100 basis points. That was one of our largest um, conversions last year that we referenced earlier in the conversation. Um, J-I-R-E, JIRE is, you know, great, great portfolio to play on the international side as well. And you kind of touched on it, Nate, right? Like, I think the three biggest flow categories, you probably know better than me, but it's something like Europe slash international, um, income strategy, and ultra short. And, you know, it just so happens that we've got capabilities in, in each of those, and we think leading capabilities in each, and, you know, we've participated in, in a couple of those. We do have just a, a minute left, or do you want to come back to uh, the core plus bond ETF? Is that what you noted? Is that uh, yeah, that, JCPB? Yeah, that one is So, you know, I'll, I'll be quick, Nate, just to, just to respect the time. I think fixed income delivered through the ETF wrapper is going to be a game changer for investors. You've got the benefits of the ETF trading throughout the day, tight spreads, transparency, um, externalization of trade costs, combined with some of the best actively managed fixed income strategies uh, in, in the market. So I'll use JPI for an example. This is a sleeping giant, 796 bonds in it. The objective of the portfolio is high yield like yield with lower volatility outperformed ag, treasury, and high-yield benchmarks last year. It's, it's got 796 bonds in it, trade date basis points wide. So the efficiency for investors to get exposure to a strategy like that is so um, it, such a game-changer for, for, for investors that are building their portfolios. If you were to go out and buy those 796 bonds, it'd take you six months if you could even do it. Your spreads would be close to a percent. I mean, it's it's just such a night and day experience. I call it the digitization of bonds. Uh, JPI is a sleeping giant. JPIE, Core Plus Bond is a, is is a very similar story as well. This is a core holding in an asset allocator portfolio, actively managed benchmarks to the ag. Um, we think that the design is you know appropriate, and you know we encourage investors if they're using the ag to take a look at uh, Core Plus Bond and see see the way that it can provide. Um, you know, exposure. We think that the, the fixed income space is, is just getting going in, in ETFs. Um, you know, uh, we think it's going to grow very rapidly over the coming years. Uh, and we think those are two of the strategies that are sleeping giants. I think that we'll see them follow a similar pattern that we've seen with some of the others. Well, Brian, fantastic conversation this week. Congratulations on all the uh, success. I think you might be up to the sixth largest issuer next time we chat. Uh, I, I'm going to make that prediction, but thank you for uh, joining me this week. Nate, thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Enjoy your stuff. That was Brian Lake, Global Head of ETF Solutions at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Own Bitcoin but also want income? There is a way to generate monthly income while you hold. Visit Simplify.us for information on the Simplify Bitcoin Income Strategy. 
Simplify Asset Management, Inc. is a registered investment advisor. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor. This information is not intended to provide investment advice. Joined by Anakit Alal, head of ETF data and analytics at CFRA, one of the world's leading independent investment research firms. And as I noted at the top, Anakit has quickly become one of the industry's go-to resources. And he's now on the line with me from Las Vegas. Anakit, great having you on the uh, podcast. Thanks, Nate. Great to be here. All right, so we're going to cover several big stories in ETFs uh, right now. But before we do that, since I haven't had you on the podcast before, do you want to offer a little bit of uh, background on your current role and uh, perhaps how you interact with the ETF industry? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me on and excited to be here. I've been in the ETF and indexing space for several years. Um, several years ago, I used to work at, at S&P in the index business. Uh, this is, uh, you know, when ETF business was still fairly early in its development. And I was there when S&P was setting up its product management team, actually ended up uh, being the product lead for S&P's U.S. equity indices, including for the S&P 500, worked closely with a lot of ETF issuers. I then left to start up my own ETF-focused data and analytics business, which I ran for several years, which actually got acquired by CFRA in 2019, as CFRA was looking to ramp up its uh, focus on ETFs in terms of data and research and ratings. So that's kind of my background. So I've seen the business from many different angles and still excited about the future. Okay, so let's dive into some of these uh, key ETF stories right now. And I would say perhaps the biggest story so far this year is these inflows into actively managed uh, ETFs. I've covered these the last several weeks on the podcast. And actually, uh, JP Morgan's Brian Lake and I just talked uh, about this a little bit. But I'd love to hear from your perspective what you think is going on here. So maybe offer us a few stats and then explain what you think some of the drivers are. Sure. So I agree with you. It's an important story. Uh, I'd say there's a couple of interesting observations. And I know you may have touched on some of these in your prior discussion as well as previous podcasts. But one is, Clearly, active ETFs are, are punching above above their weight this year. Uh, as you know, you know, in terms of assets, if you look at the overall ETF industry, which is about in the U.S., it's about 6.7, just under 6.8 trillion right now. In terms of AUM, active ETFs only make up about 5% of, of those assets. But in terms of flows, we've seen, you know, just a little under $20 billion in flows this year. That's a pretty significant number which means it's about 40 to 45% of the inflows that have come in this year. So, you know, the first point is, yes, activists certainly punched above its weight and taken in significant inflows. I think the second interesting point is that the firms that are taking in these assets are actually very different from the ones that currently dominate the industry. So if you look at the top five players in the active ETF space in terms of assets, it's Dimensional, JP Morgan, First Trust, Aventis, PIMCO. None of these firms are in the top five in the indexed ETF space. In fact, the closest may be First Trust, uh, which is, you know, uh, number six in the index space. So it's interesting to see that the asset flows have been kind of 
dominated by firms that are not traditionally the index ETF space, which is kind of a new dynamic, I would say, in the ETF industry uh, this year. Yeah, and I guess on that note, I saw you had a quote in uh, in the ETF.com piece last week, and let me read this. So you said, quote, the growth in active ETFs likely represents a concerted distribution push by firms with the ability to grow ETF assets due to their existing mutual fund or wealth management franchises. It shows that investors that have existing relationships or trust in these firms are willing to migrate the relationship over to these new ETF vehicles. Can you talk more about that specifically? Because I, I think that's exactly what we're seeing from firms like Dimensional and certainly J.P. Morgan, uh, Capital Group. Uh, talk, talk more about that. A lot of these firms are very established players in, in their in their industry, right? So Dimensional, we know, has a huge, like an army of advisors who really believe in the Dimensional methodology. They may have used Dimensional funds for many years. And essentially were a uh, an audience that is probably ready to move over to the ETF vehicle. So I think when Dimension launched these ETFs, and in fact, Dimension even converted some of their mutual funds to ETFs, I think there was kind of that latent demand there from many advisors who wa- were willing to move over to these new vehicles. Uh, I think the same thing is probably true of, of Capital Group, um, you know, where again, there's, you know, one of the largest franchises on the mutual fund side, uh, you know, there may be advisors who are familiar with their funds, um, like their methodology, who are willing to move over. And certainly on the wealth management side with J.P. Morgan, again, they've kind of got a, uh, you know, uh, a set, ability, ability to bring over assets, right, from their existing wealth management franchise into the ETF business. So, you know, the, the interesting thing is, even though there have been flows into the ETF, active ETF space, it's really been dominated by four or five firms. The top five firms in terms of activity flows have taken in, you know, the lion's share of assets. And it's these firms I just mentioned that already have existing relationships that uh, they're able to port over into the, into the ETF business. All right. Another ETF story that I know we're both tracking, and this one also ties into my conversation with uh, J.P. Morgan's Brian Lake, but that's the rise of options-based ETF strategies. And so you look at an ETF like uh, JEPI, the J.P. Morgan Equity Premium Income ETF, which is just vacuuming up investor dollars right now. I think that's the perfect example. But there are numerous covered call strategy ETFs and buffer or defined outcome ETFs and other options-based strategies that are doing very well in terms of investor adoption. Do you think that's been primarily uh, market-driven, just investors looking for solutions outside of, say, plain vanilla market cap exposure? I agree with this is a very important story. In fact, I'd argue that if you look back at last year, this is probably one of the most important trends of 2022, which is using these options-based strategies and the adoption of these types of ETFs uh, by advisors and investors. It's really fallen into two categories. The first is using, you know, like you mentioned, covered cost strategies to generate income. JEPI is the best example of that, but there are, like you said, other ETFs that do this well. Uh, JEPI took in $12 billion last year, which is a massive number. Um, the other way in which options are being used is, is, as you said, defined outcome or buffered ETFs, where options can, where investors can essentially invest in products where the upside is capped, um, you know, but then in exchange they get some downside protection up to a certain percentage. And I think both of these approaches, both for generating income and for defined outcome, have been successful. The question is, 
is it going to last in other words is this like what we saw with currency hedging a few years ago where they were hot for a while and then kind of didn't pick up again or is it a longer term trend uh, my my hypothesis is this is a longer term trend i think there's a trend here where ets are going to move more towards solution uh, you know oriented uh, products and uh, happy to dive more into that if we have time but i i for these various reasons i i think that uh, these products are actually here to stay and i i do think we will see more of these uh, kind of options based products uh, be successful in the future i completely agree i think that uh, as you hit on these are solutions based products or such a diversity of offerings in the space that are out there that i think it really doesn't matter what type of market environment we may be in there are going to be products that uh, investors can look to I, I guess one question i'll ask you just around these is any thoughts regarding education in this space because there, there's no doubt some of these products are much more complicated they're a little more difficult for investors to get their their, their head around any thoughts on on how we should approach education around these i think education is key because you know there, there is complexity primarily because a lot of the defined outcome products in particular they have reset periods every month right so there's a monthly kind of annual reset rather uh, which is works on a monthly kind of cadence uh, then you've got the caps keep changing right depending on what's happening in the market so there is an opportunity for um, you know issuers here to educate investors and advisors on these products which i think is key but I, I the reason i think i agree with you i think the reason they're going to be successful is because you know they're more aligned with the way, the way investors think which is around financial outcomes i think the etf space is shifting from just access to outcomes access is okay you didn't have access to gold or you don't have access to low ball strategies now you do outcomes is more around okay i want returns in a certain range i want risk to be in a certain range and so i do think that's a little bit more sophisticated and ultimately i do think that if the education is provided i think these products have an interesting uh, future all right one other etf story i'm tracking over these first uh, couple of months of the year is this rotation into international etfs if you look they've actually led inflows overall in terms of major asset classes. And so I guess I'll ask you the same question here as I, I, I asked you with broad active and then options-based ETFs. What do you think has been driving that interest? Well, I think the primary driver of interest is really what's happening with the dollar. Uh, now the question is, is this going to be sustained? We need to, we need to see that. But the, the statistics this year are pretty stark. You know, there's been about a little under $20 billion into equities uh, in terms of new inflows this year. 29 billion are inflows into global so global or ex us equities and 10 billion outflows from domestic equities so a huge rotation into international and i think this has been driven by the fact that going into the year there was a very clear view that the dollar strength would moderate last year the dollar was very strong up about 12% against a trade weighted basket of currencies uh, so i think a lot of the, a lot of this was driven by by the dollar expectations now of course we know inflation is a little bit more sticky than we expected uh, the dollar could uh, you know has become real stronger in the last couple of weeks so i think whether this trend continues remains to be seen but i think that i think dollar strength was a huge factor was a huge factor here as well as the fact that these markets were down a lot last year and so they were relatively cheap uh, so i think these were some of the factors that have driven flows uh, into the space Anna, okay, just a few minutes left here before I let you go. This isn't necessarily uh, an ETF story per se, but I wanted to ask you about a research report that you uh, published last week. And as you may know, I absolutely love this type of stuff. And I think it really highlights what 
you and CFRA can bring to the table. So you looked at growth-oriented ETFs, so something like the Vanguard Growth ETF, ticker VUG, and how there's been a significant divergence in performance uh, between that and, say, the uh, iShares S&P 500 growth ETF, ticker IVW. And you gave some other examples uh, as well, but I'd love to have you talk more about this because this obviously gets into ETF due diligence and understanding the different methodologies out there and not just looking at the lowest cost ETF or the one with the highest uh, assets under management. Do do you want to spend a few minutes just talking about ETF due diligence in, in that context? Sure. You know, we really think it's important for investors to look at the underlying index. If it's an index ETF, how the what the methodology looks like, uh, rebalancing schedules, uh, and for an active ETF, looking at the underlying holdings, sector exposures. And, you know, if you look at growth and value ETFs this year, it really highlights why this is important. Like if you look at the large cap growth space, like you mentioned, VUG is up, you know, over 11%. Uh, the iShares product, which tracks an S&P index, uh, IBW is only up 5.6%. We're talking about a 5% differential in a short time period in the exact same strategy or, or asset class. And this really comes down to the fact that S&P constructs its indices differently from, from Chris. That's not to say one index is better than the other, but just the fact that they have different definitions of growth and value, different sector exposures, results in very different performance. And I think for investors to be able to understand this and therefore understand, you know what, I may get very different returns in different ETFs is actually really, really important. So this is something we focus on a lot at CFRA, and, and we try and educate investors on understand the index, understand the holdings, and, and kind of dive into that a little bit. Well, Anika, great having you on the uh, podcast. I certainly look forward to doing this uh, again. I think uh, clearly showing your range of ETF expertise this week. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Nate. That was Anikit Ulal, head of ETF data and analytics at CFRA. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Amplify ETFs. If you would like to learn more about Amplify ETFs, you can visit AmplifyETFs.com. Next week, I'll be joined by Dave Mazza, Chief Strategy Officer at Roundhill. He's going to discuss their upcoming suite of uh, big ETFs, along with a a few other ETFs they offer. I'm really intrigued by those big ETFs, though. And then SoFi's Tobin McDaniel will cover their unique uh, ETF lineup, which is now over $500 million in assets. Until then, have a great week, everyone.